Hi everyone, we are back with the second part of our review of Mahler's second symphony here today. Or on this second portion of the episode, we're going to be reviewing entirely the last movement of Mahler's second symphony. One of the most stunning, one of the largest symphonic movements ever composed. Uh, in many ways, you could say this is the greatest symphonic movement maybe ever composed in terms of narrative, in terms of kanta, it's, it's stunning. I am incredibly excited to, to review it. Nothing better to shake off the uh, cabin fever of a little coronavirus apocalyptic quarantine than reviewing this apocalyptic movement, the last movement of Mahler's second. So let's jump right in. In this movement, we, if you've, I would recommend listening to the first half of this podcast first to get a sense of where we're at in the plot of this symphony. But just to briefly review, we've we've asked the questions of what essentially what is the meaning of life? What is what is this? Is there an afterlife? Can we make sense of the sufferings of the real world? And is there a promise of something better, some sort of salvation that's coming to us? And in the previous movement, the Urlicht, we, we got the first glimpse that, in fact, there is something for us to look forward to. There is potentially life after death, according to Mahler's worldview, or at least this piece's worldview. But then we have to go through the actual day of judgment, the apocalypse, and we have to, we have to experience that in, in musical time and, and in musical depiction. And so that's what we're going to hear in this movement. It's a true vision of Judgment Day and the apocalypse. And in the first half, we're going to get this really kind of realistic depiction of a, a musical painting of, of Judgment Day. Uh, it's vivid, it's very tangible and real. And then in the second half, when we get the choir that enters, this is a choral last movement, then we start to look at the more the larger questions of what does the resurrection mean and and what does that entail for us but we're going to start looking at the first of these two sections these sections actually had names given to them by Mahler the first is uh I'll translate from the german it's something like the one calling in the wilderness there's this idea that the resurrection or judgment day is there's a caller who calls out that this is, is going to happen from a distance. I'll, in a minute, I'll read the actual passage from the Bible that refers to that. But the second section that comes later in the movement is the great roll call or some, some translation along those lines where people actually come and get judged and then are, are resurrected. So we're going to start talking about the first section and before we hear some of the music, I want to remind us of three motifs that we've already heard in these breakthrough moments of earlier movements in the symphony that are going to be very, very important in this movement. The first one, if you remember, we heard this dies irae motif, which the dies irae is the requiem chant 
for the Day of Judgment, which goes... And then in Mahler's transformation, we hear... But importantly, the, the motif I want us to remember is... So that's the Dies Irae. That represents death, pessimism, and more tangibly the Day of Judgment. Then we've heard a couple other motifs very briefly. One that I'm going to call the Resurrection motif, which goes... Really, you can even recognize this one just by three notes. Up and down. And then we have what we might call, some historians have called the eternity motif, or some, there's the resurrection motif of actually being saved, resurrected, and then there's this motif that seems to represent some sort of eternal life, which goes... So that one falls and then rises. So I want us to keep those three ideas in mind here as we go through the music of this, this last movement. So we start, this has already been foreshadowed, the start of this movement. We, we foreshadowed it in a breakthrough in the third movement, but now we hear it truly. This is the, the moment of the apocalypse, and it, the movement opens with this shudder of terror. I'll play that for you and then listen to what happens right after that as well. So already we've heard this eternity motif once here. After that shuddering explosion signifying the beginning of the apocalypse. So already there's this idea that we've got the notion that something more is, is to come shortly. Then we hear the first of many calls from, from the caller, whoever that may be. There's an important passage from, from Isaiah, from, from the Christian scripture, that, that alludes to this idea. The passage goes, a voice cries in the wilderness, and then there's this famous passage, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for God, every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be low, all this stuff. This is, if you know Handel's Messiah, there's an entire aria dedicated to this passage, but there's the idea that something calls out 
to signal the beginning of this day of judgment. And we hear that in this in this last movement represented by offstage horns. It's an incredibly uh, picturesque, or maybe not picturesque, but it's an incredibly evocative moment where you hear these horns from a distance calling something out. Here's what that sounds like. So once we've heard the call, we start the proceedings of the, the Day of Judgment. First, we, we reckon a little bit with what this means. We can almost hear the fear or the impending doom of, of an individual observer of this before the actual real vivid depiction of, of the Day of Judgment comes. And the first thing we hear is this passage. See if you can recognize some of those motifs in this passage that comes right after we hear that horn call that we were, those motifs that we were talking about earlier. So first thing we hear in there, there's, it's, it feels like this slow funeral procession, a little bit like the first movement, but we hear... And then it continues. But again, that's that DSRA motif. So we know it symbolizes... Day of judgment, death, reckoning. And then we hear, after that, another motif. And if you recognize that one, that is the resurrection motif, as we called it. So... Already it's this long passage, but we're getting clues that Dies Irae is followed by resurrection. That order is important. So we'll, 
we'll keep that in mind as we continue going here. So then we hear the call again. He continues playing with this idea of the Dies Irae and the resurrection motifs. And then we come to another passage that uh, feels a little bit out of place in the context of, of the narrative, but it's one of these moments where Mahler decides, here in the form, he decides to foreshadow something that's going to come later. So I want to play for you that passage so that you hear it now, so that you recognize it when it comes later. So it's a passage that feels like it doesn't have much rhythm, it's, it's somewhat painful, it's what we might call almost a recitative-like passage where it sounds like a singer almost speaking. We'll table that for now and, and just, just keep that music in the back of your ears, it'll come back much later. But then, again, we kind of recycle what we've heard and a second time we hear that Dies Irae idea followed by the resurrection theme. But I'm going to play this entire passage for you. It's one of the most magical passages in the movement. And this time, the resurrection theme goes somewhere a little bit further. So listen to, you'll recognize that Dies Irae theme again, but then something will happen with the resurrection motif theme that will take it in a, in a slightly different direction. So you'll notice that time the resurrection theme builds, 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 and results in this huge climax chorale, uh, super loud from the whole orchestra. And we could spend an entire podcast or all of these podcasts talking about 
the key relationships in Mahler, and I'm not going to do that because I think it it won't be of primary interest to our listeners, but I want to point out some of the most important ones when they come that are so crucial. I've mentioned, if you remember at all, thinking back, the first movement of this piece was in C minor, and at key moments in the third movement, we had breakthroughs where there was that fanfare in C minor, which was the real one that led us to this apocalypse moment. The key of C has clearly been a major player in this symphony, and you look to a piece like Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, starts in C minor, and the whole goal of that piece is to get to C major. It's the same in Brahms's First Symphony, C minor to C major. And that's the trajectory that we're expecting for a symphony. This symphony, Resurrection, has a very similar large-scale narrative to pieces like Beethoven's Fifth, Brahms' First, of struggle to triumph. And so we've arrived here at C major, and it feels like this is what we've been working for. We get this massive C major climax that results from this process of transformation, the DSRA theme to the resurrection theme, which seems to save us. But in yet another genius stroke by Mahler, this is not actually the end of our journey. And C major is a false attainment of the resurrection. And so we hear this now, it feels like we've arrived, but we will shortly learn that this is not the ultimate goal end goal key of this piece. This is not where we want to have arrived. We're going to somewhere actually very different. So then we hear this, we hear this climax. Um, we hear another iteration of the, the caller theme, um, the, the horn call that we had heard from offstage originally. And then we come to the musical depiction of this apocalyptic judgment day. I always, when I hear this music, I think of the the painting by um, Hieronymus Bosch of called The Garden of Earthly Delights, this triptych where there's all these distorted, weird figures. There's one of the panels is dedicated to a sort of judgment day depiction, and it's I, I that that resonates to me with with this music. It's really wild, it's chaotic, um, but it begins in the most stunning fashion. This is something you really have to hear live because it starts very quietly and the, all of the percussion section builds and grows their sound to as loud as they possibly can to this kind of deafening roar. I'll play it for you in a little bit of the music that follows, but this is one of those moments. Nothing can replace the live effect of how deafeningly loud this this becomes. You almost have to to plug your ears. Um, here's that, here's that passage. So Mahler himself said about this passage, it's like 
the graves of the dead opening up and their bodies coming out of the ground being arisen. Um, and we hear that from this, this deafening percussion crescendo. What we get right after this is, is this sort of march music, which Mahler described as, he said, the dead rise and walk in an endless procession. And we hear this kind of funeral march type thing. And then I want to play for you a moment, another moment of breakthrough where we actually get a hearkening back to the first movement, that funeral march that we had heard already. And we hear the music of the funeral march along with the DSRA motif that we've heard. And interestingly, I want you to listen closely because you'll hear the resurrection motif appear again. And if you've got a good memory or we're listening closely, we heard this exact same passage in the first movement. It was the first time we were exposed to the resurrection motif in the development of the first movement. We heard it at this brief fleeting moment and then all of that hope got quashed in the first movement and the exact same thing happens here telling us yet again this is not yet the time for you to be resurrected here's here's that passage that mirrors the a similar passage in the first movement So maybe you could hear there towards the end, we hear the resurrection motif come. And it gets quashed by the DS era motif. Just like in the first movement, so we know we, we have not yet arrived. We hear another passage that mirrors that passage I played for you earlier, the kind of recitative, pain-filled passage that's going to come again later. We won't listen to that now. We hear this vivid passage with a band of offstage trumpets. And then we finally come to the second part of this this last movement, the the roll call as it's as it's known. The the moment when the dead actually come are judged and potentially resurrected. And so to initiate this second part, again, we hear the, the passage that's meant to represent chaos, fear, cataclysm. And just like the opening of this movement, we hear those uh, resurrection and eternity motifs come back again. After this moment, this, this last moment of, of chaos, of trembling fear, it's important to note, we won't hear the DSRA motif anymore. So we've, we've passed, I guess, the day of reckoning in, in that sense. And now it's just left to our, our final judgment and for our soul to actually 
be resurrected. So let me play for you that cataclysmic, the second cataclysmic passage where we we initiate, we go into the, the final part of, of this movement. So we hear that, that chaos, we hear those eternity and resurrection motifs again, and then we come to one of the most, again, one of the most evocative and interesting passages of the movement. We hear this call for the last time, and this will be the final call, and accompanying it, we now have an added, the horns are still off stage, but we have an added trumpet. The trumpet represents what's known as the last trumpet, something that's alluded to in a lot of scripture. This is potentially the last thing you hear before you get judged, is, is the last trumpet. And we also hear a bird of the night, uh, a nightingale, which is also often, it's, it's a symbol of death, it's a symbol of, of this day of judgment. And Mahler himself said about this, this nightingale, it's the last trembling echo of life on earth. So everything else has been flattened, wiped out. There's this one bare nightingale that we hear still still chirping, chirping. Let me play for you that incredible passage from, from the beginning of this second part of the last movement. So then we come to the first entrance of the choir. The choir that's been sitting here for maybe 80 plus minutes finally gets to sing. And when they enter first, they enter as quietly as possible, almost that you can't hear it. 
it's a, again an incredible effect that can only be captured live but we'll try to do our best here to to replicate it and what they sing when they first come in they say the word Auferstein which is the most important word of this symphony but the English translation of the first stanza that they sing is arise yes you will arise dust of my body after a brief rest immortal life will he who called you grant to you so we finally get our answer to the question that we've been asking this entire symphony he who called you we heard the caller many times is going to grant you in fact this immortal life and so let's listen to this magical first entrance of the choir listen closely see if you can recognize any of our our three favorite motifs buried in there So we hear the choir very, very slowly sing Auferstein, Arise. This is the word for the resurrection. And to that text, their melody is... Do we recognize that little rising, falling figure? This is, as you, as you guessed it, the resurrection motif we've heard so many times, and now it's been put to words finally and we it's clarified for us for those of us who are not following via a podcast breakdown and actually listening in real time what this little idea has meant this entire time so then we hear this fantastic orchestral intermezzo interlude that comes between stanzas of the choir we're not going to play it here because um this happens many times but you have to you have to listen to it it's just it's beautiful music we hear another stanza sung by the choir. If you're interested in the, the full text of what the choir sings, I'd encourage you to go, go look it up. And then we come to the stanza, O Glauba, um, O Believe, My Heart, Nothing is Lost for You. This is now sung by a soloist, an alto soloist, the same one that we heard in the Urlicht. And this is the passage that we had been that had been foreshadowed twice for us. Remember, I played for you that kind of recitative style, improvisatory, painful, shivering passage. And this come back, comes back now also with text clarified what, what this actually means. Let's listen to that passage.
so there's some key text in this one. This, this portion of the text was entirely Mahler's. As I mentioned, he added some of his own thought and infused some, some more modern thought with, with pure Christian doctrine and his interpretation of, of these questions that we're trying to answer. And, and the line that I think is important in this verse is, Oh, believe you were not born in vain, nor have you lived or suffered in vain. And this, I think, was the question that was being posed to us by the third movement, if you remember. We look back, is this, is this all in vain? Are, are, are humans uh, too vain and, and lack the, the senses to be able to understand why all of the, the troubles, sufferings of the world befall them? And here we have our answer in this painful passage of music, but nonetheless, it's not, this is no longer a bad kind of pain. It's, it's a good kind of pain that will be transformed into, into resurrectory type of, of, uh, of pain, potentially. So we hear more choir stanzas as well. It's important. I would encourage you to listen to, I mean, the whole movement, but, but I'm going to skip over some of these because for the structure of the movement, for the narrative, they, they aren't quite as important. But then we, be, we come to another really key moment, a duet between the alto and the soprano. And I want to play for you this moment. There's so many, uh, you'll notice, there are just so many references to other moments of this piece, other types of music over the course of this whole uh, piece. But here we, we actually refer back to the fourth movement, the Urlicht movement. And if you remember, I played one passage from the Urlicht that I wanted to highlight that would come back later and mention that this would be the key that would unlock the rest of the symphony for us. And I want to play for you this passage in the last movement and see if you can remember back and recognize if you heard this. We did hear this before, but see if you can, you can recognize this from the fourth movement, the Urlicht movement. Again, like the genius of so much of Mahler, he kind of buries the reference to the Urlicht where we were originally asking the question and trying to answer the question of what, what life after death looks like. Uh, he buries it in this passage, but if you noticed, if you listen closely, here's, here's what we heard. It goes... And then the choir comes in very low. 
they start singing in the key of E flat major. And it turns out this little passage from the Urlicht, it modulates us into the key of e, ma e flat major. And again, for those who are not particularly interested in all of this technical jargon, it's not important. The only thing that's important is that here we have actually found the key that's going to close this symphony. It's not C major as we might have expected, not only from what Mahler set up for us, but fr from what Beethoven, Brahms, and all of these composers before them had set up for us. No, in fact, this is a different solution to the end of a symphony, one that's even more profound, potentially, than those ideas of Beethoven and Brahms. We're not going to end this symphony sol simply in C major. It's actually going to end in, in E flat. And so then we've unlocked the key and this ending coda. From here on out, we're all in E flat major, and... I have to play for you. I, I don't want to spoil the very, very ending of this piece. It's maybe the greatest ending to any symphony. Again, a must, must see live. But because it's just so amazing, let's listen to a, a, a good stretch of music here from, from the tail end and listen to when the choir finally arrives. There's one word that they come back to and repeat from the first stanza when they first entered to their last entrance, and that's Auferstein. We hear it sung with that resurrection motif that is finally found E-flat major and is as triumphant as you can possibly imagine. So here's that final closing passage, one of the greatest passages in the history of music. I mean, come on, there's nothing better in, in all of music than that. It's just, it's, it's an unbelievable ending. It's so triumphant, but also just the culmination of what to me is one of the most stunning, profound narrative arches, 
quasi-programmatic arches to a symphony, but not fully programmatic. We're left to interpret so much of what this is meant, which I think makes it all the more profound. We we don't get a, a explicit answer to these incredibly interesting, thorny, challenging metaphysical questions. They're left to the listener to, to try to interpret what Mahler's worldview was and what this actually means for us. But what, what we can undoubtedly take away from it is just a shot of adrenaline from such an incredible ending. So with that, we've come to the end of, of the second symphony, maybe my personal favorite, but stay tuned because Man, it's it, we're, it's the gauntlet here because I I personally have to reset and dive into the music of the third symphony, which is again in and of itself a colossal narrative, a huge, an entirely different approach to to the world, and a, a totally different set of philosophical and musical questions. And so that's coming hopefully tomorrow. Uh, keep an eye out for that. But for now. Happy listening, enjoy the second, and as always, stay healthy, healthy, safe, sane out there, and uh, we'll be back with you shortly.